This is the Send Talks podcast from Galdards. Okay, so welcome to our podcast where we're going to be discussing growing up with dyslexia. Um, so Adam, we've got Adam here today. You guys know that um, Adam has diagnosed dyslexia. We are always asking him for his personal experiences. Adam, I know we've done a podcast with Gemma on dyslexia. But I think what we were getting through from our listeners was that they wanted to hear more of a personal experience and, and what it was like for you growing up. Because obviously their children are have just got their diagnoses or they're very young or they're going through it, they're in the process of going through it. Whereas you are living with it, you're on the other end and you've had all those experiences going through school, training, training to become a lawyer, for example, with dyslexia, which is very document heavy we all know that so i think maybe if we can go to like the very beginning um when did you first get your diagnosis and what did that look like when you were young uh so i think i i I have to take a few more steps back than that so okay before i got my diagnosis of dyslexia so that happened around about seven so quite early on i think as early as you can do it and it's the early 90s so when I was born, I was born with a condition called glue ear. I don't know when I got it, but effectively it means that my ears weren't draining properly. Um, I think the best way to describe glue ear is it's like listening underwater. So in those early years, between zero to seven, basically I couldn't hear properly. And as a consequence of that, you know, it impacts on how you you actually perceive what people are saying, their intentions. It also impacts on your development of language. So I still to this day mispronounce quite a few of my words. And if you're mispronouncing words and using them incorrectly, then obviously when you are kind of developing your spelling and and those kind of skills, you're going to get that wrong because you, you would have misheard the word in the first place. It's funny, years ago I, I listened to a speech language therapist talking directly about glue ear and if it's not addressed the kind of impact it can have and it can have quite significant impact on kind of mental health and I think that's partly as I said because you're not listening or hearing properly so you're misunderstanding the intentions of others so in my early kind of school years because I couldn't express myself my language isn't developed in the right way I used to be quite physical and in my first school so Adam aged five or six, I think, I was excluded from school for biting someone. And whilst I cannot remember the exact reasons for me biting someone, I think it was probably a um, communication issue. So yeah, not being able to express um, how I was feeling about something, which is ironic because anyone who's who's listened to me and Scarlett talking about our son's diagnosis of, of autism We've heard about how one of the um, areas where he was having difficulty was over his early communication interaction. And one of the first episodes we had when we were called into school was biting and did feel like it was a bit like the wheel turning over and over again. Um, so that was, I suppose, the first um, clue to my parents that I wasn't kind of developing how I should do. Um, with me, I, I suppose I was... I was lucky because my older brother, Andrew, um, is also severely dyslexic and he is five years older than me. So it was picked up late with him when he was about 10. 
but because of that experience, I suppose my parents did know what they were looking for um, a bit more. And I'm also lucky because my father is a barrister, and although he wasn't, because the educational system does not exist in the way it does now, practicing an education because of my, my, my brother's experience and his, I think, fights through those days in the county courts to get him the provision he required. He ended up at a school called East Court, which is a dyslexic school. I think they picked it up on me quite quickly. Um, so the first kind of things I remember is actually not to do with my reading and writing. It was going to the hospital to have grommets fitted and early memories of going to swimming baths and having to put um, um, earplugs in my ear, usually made of wax, which is a bit odd, um, and having to do that. Whilst that was odd as well, if I didn't do that, I used to get an ear infection really easily. And the damage to my eardrums were pretty bad when I was a kid. So I think that's kind of history. I went to a mainstream um, primary school. I was basically excluded for biting. I think it was actually the deputy head's son that I ended up biting, which probably didn't help the situation. <laughs> and then I ended up at a smaller school. I think my parents had worked out that I wasn't taking what my teachers were saying. I think it was because I was struggling to hear and I suppose process what the teachers were saying, particularly in a big class of 30. So they placed me in a smaller environment. And whilst I was there, it was picked up that I was having literacy difficulties. I think I, I didn't even have the kind of basics of being able to know the alphabet or kind of understand um, kind of early writing. Um, so the next step they took was because of my brother, they had me assessed, I think, in the dyslexia um, institution at the time to see if I was dyslexic and lo and behold, I was. The difference pathways here is, is by this stage, I think my older brother was already in a dyslexic school, but with me, even though I, was, I had my hearing issues and I had grommets fitted and was actually by this stage probably hearing better, because I used to speak and um, was quite articulate with what I was saying, I think my parents missed that actually my needs were as great as my brother's. So I stayed in mainstream, well, a smaller kind of mainstream environment, probably about two or three more years longer than I should have. Um, I ended up going to a school called Appleford, which is in Wiltshire, which is a dyslexia school. And back in the early 90s, dyslexia, a bit like autism today, I think was a real buzzword. Everyone was talking about it. It was a condition that was impacting a lot of people. I think one in five people in, in the UK these days has got a diagnosis of dyslexia. So many people undiagnosed. I can't tell. I always talk about my friends who I message all the time and I speak to all the time. And I'm like, you definitely got a di like, diagnosis from someone who's not qualified to give diagnosis, but it's obviously not just been not been picked up. Yeah, and I think with dyslexia, it's, again, it's a spectrum in some respects, and people don't really get that. So I think there's a lot of stigma attached to dyslexia where people will just assume that you need five more minutes in the exam or you have a few issues reading. You have that, and then you have so someone who's severely dyslexic. So I fit in that bracket, and I think of that, you know, that one in five, about 15% of that one in five is what you'd call severely dyslexic. And that means, like, the kind of differentiation you'd expect in a mainstream classroom to address that need it doesn't work so after having I suppose what you call bolt-on provision within my small mainstream environment of a dyslexia teacher on a weekly basis both within the school and out of school which I used to hate um, because they always used to do my dyslexia teaching when they were doing stuff that I wanted to do like playing sport and 
I mean, after you've done a... No, the fun stuff, yeah. Yeah, no, after you've done a whole day's worth of school, when your par parents say to you, do you know what would be really fun right now? Let's go and do some more English, which you hate, you know? So I remember pretending to be ill a lot to try and avoid having to go to my extra dyslexia teaching, and it just wasn't working. Um, so at some stage, my parents, it, it, I think in conjunction with the school I was at, they saw that I just wasn't making progress and the there was a major barrier to my learning. So at that stage, they explored dyslexia schools. Unfortunately, at that stage in London, there wasn't really much in terms of provision. So a lot of the dyslexic schools that are well-known in London today were either really in their infancy in terms of being set up, or they weren't set up. So I went to Appleford. I didn't want to go to Eastcourt where my brother went. I think partly because I was quite a cheeky young boy and I probably annoyed all of my brother's friends and the idea of being stuck in a, um, a boarding school with them just made me feel like I was going to get in a lot of trouble so um, I ended up at Appleford and that was great so at Appleford within a year where everything's differentiated to the point of teaching by dyslexia teachers um, I made a lot of progress and I think at that time they also saw that I had other needs so they realized that Actually, I had a bit of a receptive language issue and I was mispronouncing um, certain words. And so I had a speech and language therapist involved. And we also had an occupational therapist involved as well, um, which if anyone looks at my profile, they'll see that I used to play quite a high level of rugby. So people, when I talk to them, particularly new clients and parents, they say to me, well, my son's really good at sports, so clearly they don't have any motor issues. But you can be quite good at something. Yeah, I mean, on the rugby pitch, I, I, I used to dance around like a gazelle and off it, I was always a thug and I'd knock over things and smash them like a, a bull in, a, in a, a china shop. So I've had some of my kids and report back to me from, like parents report back to me that they've said once they've gone into a dyslexia school, it's like almost like a book actually opening up and you actually understanding like what it is that you're being told to do and accessing the books and reading them and being able to do the work and it feels like a relief but what what did it feel like for you like the difference between mainstream when you were being taught how was you receiving that versus how you was receiving the teaching when you went to a dyslexia school so it's is i was actually quite happy at the school I was at beforehand. Um, I wasn't at the one I got excluded from. I was very unhappy. Yeah. But the, the school I went to bet bef between where I got kind of suspended for biting and <laughs> and then went on to the specialist dyslexic school, the school I had in between, it was a nice environment. And I think I was quite confident then. Um, I was very good at rugby, so I was quite, quite popular. Um, I don't know if that's an overstatement. I'm sure you were popular, but <laughs> I, I suppose like I I actually didn't want to go to yeah dyslexia settled. School. You were settled. Yeah, I mean, if you t you tell most nine year olds you're going to be pulled away from a school that you were quite happy at, even though you weren't doing well, and put into a kind of residential school environment in the middle of the country where your your closest um, I suppose shop is about twenty miles away. And the outside of the school itself, you have cows and sheep all around you. It's it's quite a change. But actually, when I was there, within a very short period of time, because everything was being differentiated and appointed teaching, so brought down to a level that I could kind of decipher, and 
everyone in my classroom had the same needs as me. And that kind of shared experience of not having a very good experience at school at some stage, you kind of had comrades, you had friends who had gone through that experience. And that, that in itself is really nurturing. And also you're not the bottom of the class, the dunce, you are kind of part of a group. Um, and that makes a big difference in terms of your kind of mental self-esteem. You feel accepted, don't exactly. And you know the, the teachers there, the specialist teachers, so they're designed to kind of um, identify and address your needs, and other needs were kind of identified at the same stage. So in a very short period of time, I mean, like any child kind of going to a residential school to start off with, I suppose there is that kind of sense of abandonment. You feel a bit like that. But once you realise that it's actually for your, your, for your good and you start doing really well, that goes away very quickly. And being with your friends all the time is actually quite a nice thing to be. Yeah. So we've got some, we, we, we occasionally, not often, but we occasionally have parents who say to us, oh, no, I want them in a, main, a mainstream school because I want them to see how other people are getting on and for them to replicate that and for it to for them to kind of conform almost it's, what would you say to that kind of thinking it's a really tough one and um, i'm very conscious and aware of actually how privileged i was growing up there's yeah. not many parents out there i suppose as, as a lawyer who specialized in, the, in in special educational needs um there's not many kind of parents who would have identified as quickly as they did and and move beyond quickly because of that, you know, in some respects, I'm here where I am today in terms of that Geldard's like a, a partner in a law firm because I got that intervention when I needed it. Slightly, probably slightly later than it should have been, but enough to have made what happens today happen. In terms of my vocation, that's why I always wanted to do this area of law because I was very conscious that there were probably thousands, if not millions of people like me who do not reach their potential and have a really bad experience of school. And I think a lot of parents feel that going down the route of a specialist school, that's it. Your, your, your kind of child's future and their progress and what they're going to do is basically being hamstrung. And it's not that at all. In it, if, if you look at it a different way, you're kind of building those core skills that that person is missing, which allows them to do well. And none of the children, no matter what their needs are that we support, it, um, do badly. Usually... All we hear is success stories, and that's the loveliest thing about what we do. But if if you go back to those kind of parents who sit there and say, "I want my child to go to a school, a mainstream school," I know that their needs are significant, but I don't want them to lose out on that experience. Yeah, you know, it's parental choice to, to be a mainstream, and if that's what they want for their kids. That's great, but as long as it's for their kids, not for them. Um, if you look at it a different way often to try and build the package of support that that person needs within a mainstream school. You're talking a lot of learning support assistance time, specialist teaching, therapies. It's a lot of time outside of class. Yeah, they're by themselves a lot, aren't they? We see it so many times. And also as the child um, gets older, so they may not be aware of that learning support assistance in the early stages of their education, but usually by about year four, year five, they are becoming more aware that they need someone with them all the time, which is how I felt. And also, um, their, their peers are. And, you know, we all want children to be lovely and kind to each other. 
No, I mean, if they recognize that someone is having that kind of difficulty, there are comments, people say things. And whilst we are actually, I think, in a much more understanding world than I think I was educated in, it's still not perfect. And what you might be... A lot of the parents that we talk to, the reason why is they don't want their children to lose out on that kind of mainstream peer group. But actually, the sacrifice of that is usually their children's ability to build core skills. And in a lot of cases, their mental health. And you'd often find a kind of disengagement in learning. Almost an acceptance, I suppose, that they're not going to do well. And there's no need for it. So... I'm severely dyslexic. Um, my reading and writing skills when I was little were barely existent. Now, my writing is terrible still, but I have a lot of support in place to kind of address that. But I love reading. Uh, reading is one of my greatest passions. And when I was young and I couldn't read, I used to listen to a lot of audio books. Back then, we didn't have audio, so it was all on tape. Um, but it was how I kind of, I suppose, engaged with some of the great kind of writers of you know, our times and before that. So I think there's that kind of, if you build those skills, that can come later. And if you're basically telling someone that they are not at, not good at learning, not going to do well, but they may never go to that stage of actually reading a novel or wanting to do that. So, I mean, obviously I think I have a bit of a slight bias on it because I did go to specialist school and do well. It doesn't always work that way and it's always nuanced. Um, in terms of the individual, of course. So every, all of you know, all, we always say that all of our children, they're all individual. One um, child with dyslexia is not always the same as the second one that comes along, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth. Um, some have high anxiety. Some recoil into themselves. Some don't. Some just act out, play up, and they just don't want to get down and do the work. But I think for for me, what I've seen is all of my kids that I've got into specialist dyslexia schools. I have never had one say, you know what, this isn't working for me. Never. No, and a lot of them, if they get the right support, they can actually return to a similar mainstream environment later on. But if you if you don't address that difficulty, the consequence of it is usually in the emotional well-being of that person and their their mental health and their engagement with learning. Um, but if we if we address that straight away. And we try and put that provision early in early, and it's quite intense. I think when you when you have proper provision put into place, the outcomes are much better. So it might feel like in the short term that your your child is getting a different education from others, but that's because they need it. Not everyone is mainstream. I think we have to accept that um, that some people are are kind of programmed differently, and it doesn't mean that it's always forever. But if you don't. If you just assume that your child is like everyone else and they clearly are not like everyone else and they have those significant needs, actually by kind of pushing them to be so that they're not, it usually leads to more damage. And that's often what I say to parents. I say, well, look, when we we meet a parent and we're looking at kind of getting an EHC plan or we have one and we're looking at what needs to be included in it, you know, the first thing I say is, look, that's, what's your gut feeling about this? And I say, what? If your gut feeling is you're not sure, let's let's ask the experts and see what their view is. It's so helpful, isn't it, to have that? Yeah, no, you know, with our team, we always use people that we think are fundamentally impartial, which they should be anyway. Um, the kind of people who are going to tell parents stuff that sometimes they don't want to hear. Yeah. But that's really important in itself because, you know, when you're having someone advice in a case, you don't want them just to, to take a view of what 
a parent wants to hear, you want them to tell you what the actual child requires. And I always say that sometimes in cases, over-provision is just as dangerous as under-provision. Um, and you need that balance right. But then often in the cases, quite, the experts will be quite clear about what's required. Um, and I think as a parent, you've got to go with your gut feeling. Um, for sure, for sure. If we go back to what you experienced. So when you finished at Appleford, obviously you have to go to uni. Do you go straight into university? So before that, I, because I, I did very well at Appleford and kind of bridged, I think, about a three-year gap in, in the time I was there. I went on to a school called Brighton College, which for kind of rugby fans is usually, I think, where the England rugby team train these days and is where uh, Marcus Smith went to school. And it's highly academic now. But when I was there, it wasn't as um, focused on a- a- academia as it is now. It used to have a really good dyslexic um, unit attached to the school. And amazingly, it produced a number of young people who have gone on to do really amazing things. And the idea when I was there was your lessons for English and maths, you went off to the dyslexic unit and you basically continued to build those skills. Because it was a small environment in terms of the classrooms being small, you didn't need to have a learning support assistant with you. Um, and again, you had a group of students that you would attend the, the dyslexia unit with. By that stage, obviously, there's always a little bit of a stigma with these kind of things and people's misunderstanding. But that model worked really well for me. And um, I was able to finish with good A-levels and went on to university. Now, when I... Straight into university? Um, no, I had a year out. Um, I, at that stage, I was, I was wanting to pursue becoming a rugby player. Um, but I think, unfortunately, my skill and um, possibly my spine were reasons why that didn't go the way it should have. But, you know, it, it's always good to kind of push and see how you can go with these things. So um, I went to university a year later. Actually, at the time, I was in a, um, in a, in a back brace because I had actually fractured my spine, um, which is a kind of interesting experience to start university in that kind of state. It was a weird experience because the back then, I don't know what they're like now, the kind of back braces you wear look like something out of Star Wars. So you're walking around the university in your freshers week looking like... So you're not going to it's not helpful. No, I don't think so. I think I looked like I needed to be at a Star Wars convention or Comic Con. Um, so yeah, it was quite a weird experience and kind of doing that and then entering into university was difficult. Um, now again, this is where I feel the, the privilege that I have, which is... I actually really struggled with my first year of university. I don't think I had the same independent skills as my peers. And what I mean by that is independent study skills. Yeah, and, you know, things like going to the university library and working out how that worked was quite a daunting thing because it was a new thing that I'd never had to do before. Yeah, of course. But, you know, again, when I talk about privilege, I had a, you know, my father is a a barrister in this area and he helped me kind of uh, get the right support in place with my university. Um, back then, and you've got the disability living allowance now, um, but getting the equipment that I needed took half a year to get to arrive. And it was the early noughties, so I think my computer took over most of my room, including the monitor. I don't there was very much space for my bed and my, my freshers' halls at the time. And I don't, I, I think dyslexia again, because of the stigma attached to it and not being a real need, it took me a long time to get kind of the learning department at my university to really understand it and what I needed in terms of support. But it also took me some time to work out what I needed. Um, 
Yeah, and you know, this again is where I, I do have a privilege above, above most people. So my sister is also an educational psychologist. So in my early stages of university, she was really helpful that kind of helping me identify what I needed. Um, and then by second year, I was really kind of flying when I kind of was starting to understand my needs a bit more. Um, but it's an interesting one. A lot of parents say to me, um, oh, I think my child can go to university. And I actually think with the EHC plan these days, which go up to 25, I think a lot of students who have got neurodiversity, they take longer to mature um, in terms of learners and to develop those skills like everyone else. I actually think it's better in most cases that I'm involved with for those people to say, go on to a college and do some foundation courses, build up that kind of independent study skills and then go on to university. Yeah, it's almost like, because some colleges are, Especially because, I mean, especially if you've gone to a specialist dyslexia school, for example, until GCSEs and then A-levels, and then you're going into university, it's a completely different environment. Like universities are like, if you're on campus and you're living on campus, it's like a little island, like a little world. And there's all manner of different people there and there's a lot of them. And there's systems and there's processes and whatnot. So... Colleges are kind of like mini universities near home where you can have that nurturing from home at the same time, you're more mature, um, and you can figure out what you actually want to do at university, where you want to go, if you want to go to like an inner city one, if there's one close to, if you want to stay at home, um, or if you want to move out and you want to do that whole uni experience. Yeah, look, I, when I went to university, it's, it's 20 years ago, and I think understanding of neurodiversity, it, it, it is, I think it was what, 2003? So yeah, um, almost, well, no, it is. God, that makes me feel old. But um, I think um, at the time we are, we got a lot better, I think with kind of social media and, and people sharing things, understanding neurodiversity in a way that didn't really exist back then. So I remember turning up to get additional support and showing my educational psychologist report to the learning development department and saying, well, because of my needs, I need to have a, um, a scribe for my exams to write down my, my answers. And I need someone to read the questions in case I misread them. And I remember the, the person in the exam office talking to someone who had a physical disability in front of me, like literally two minutes before, couldn't have done more to help this person. And then I turned up and I said, oh, I've got these difficulties. So up. we, but you're dyslexic. What? we don't usually provide that and having to have a battle to put that provision into place because there was a misunderstanding of the need and its impact um it's actually something that didn't go away all the way through my studies my adult studies as well so i had similar issues when i went on to uh, sorry the gdl after i did a degree in classics and classical civilizations which i loved um it was my kind of area of uh specific interest when I was a, a teen and it's something I excelled at and it's dead boring to anyone else who doesn't um, understand that area and I think for those for those of you listening and have listened this far we have so Adam's not the only one in our office who studied classics actually um we've got two so Douglas um and Millie as well study classics so there'll be times where the three of them kind of talk about talk about it all you see Salisay's eyes glaze in it the rest of us just the noise cancelling headphones come on <laughs> they're talking about it but it's I'm sure it's very interesting but you know if you 
obviously you enjoyed it, so that's what well, I should do at university. But... I, I originally applied to go to university before my year out, and I didn't get into the university I wanted to go to. But at the time, I was actually looking at doing straight law. And I, th I think if I'd done straight law at the time, I probably wouldn't have finished it. Um, I think it's quite an intense course. Classics was not an intense course, and it was my area of expertise. Um, so I did well with that, and then I went and did the GDL. Uh, which is the uh, intensive as well GDL incredibly intensive and it's 12 months isn't it it's 12 months. yeah and I, I think with dyslexic um, learners they're good at specific subjects so you tend to find for a for GCSEs if they do GCSEs that their grades are quite average across the line and they may really struggle with certain subjects because yeah. of the way I think our brains work yeah when you get to A level, you tend to find that dyslexics actually do really well because it's areas of specific interest to themselves. And you tend to find that they really excel. And the same goes for a degree. So I'd gone from really struggling at GCCs, getting reasonable grades, doing really well at A level, and then going to university, doing a subject that I really enjoyed and doing well. So then I went on to do the GDL with a fourth um, pretense over my abilities, I think. And I, it's it's like going back to doing your GCSEs. You do what nine subjects? Yeah, and there's always at least two or three that you lose. Yeah, like I mean, for me it was pro it was land law, oh, um, EU law. It was just it was uh, yeah. I mean, uh, EU was probably one of the most boring, and as you say, land law. I I mean, it. I don't understand why people want to do it, but you know that's cho their choice to their own but it was I thought yeah we found it very difficult but same with you yeah yeah and I, I think um being dyslexic you, you tend to find areas again of specific interest so certain subjects I was really good at but I, across the board my grades would weren't where I'd I'd want them to be and I think with the GDL you're also studying in a very different way to humanities so humanities you're studying lots of different sources and kind of yeah and theory and then you're right at, Ancient history is great because you you sit there and you're like, could be this, might not be this, nobody really knows, end of essay. Worse. When you're doing um, a, a legal question, it's more like doing a mathematical equation and it took me some time to really understand the difference in how you study. Yeah. Um, so the GDL was really difficult. Um, I, I went straight onto the BBC like yourself, so that's how you become a barrister. And I, I think that was a mistake. I actually think the way the courses run at that stage were done incorrectly so the bar vocational course it's it's in the name it's vocational but very rarely are people doing the the bar vocational course have actually any vocational experience of doing any kind of law career and i think as a consequence yeah so you you get a lot of people who've gone straight from school straight to university yeah i did straight straight through yeah yeah so they actually have no vocational understanding of what they're doing um, if I had my time again, I'd probably go down uh, the apprenticeship routes that a lot of people do. Yeah, now that they have now. Yeah, yeah I think that's a much better way of doing things. Right. Yeah, I actually think better for dyslexic people as well in terms of building up your skill over time. Um, but yeah, I mean, throughout each of those stages when I did that, um, there was issues over getting the right support. I remember doing my going to my law school and then telling me that I needed to find my own reader and scribe. And I'd have to pay for it myself, which obviously is not making a reasonable adjustment. Again, having to explain that, you know, I might not have a physical dif uh, disability, but I have a hidden disability which impacts on me. Um, and at each stage, I was kind of hit by different barriers. And I did feel that when I was particularly about GDL stage, 
to the end of the BVC course before I did my law transfers to becoming a solicitor, that sometimes you were crawling, you weren't, you were certainly not jogging in terms of your um, getting to where you wanted to be. And there were a lot of stages where I actually thought, well, maybe the law isn't for me. Um, I considered, for instance, to actually retrain as a teacher at some stage. I'm really pleased I didn't do that. But I think I knew my gut feeling was if I got into the area of law that I wanted to do, um, that I'd really excel. And I really enjoy doing, um, yeah. It kind of worked out so you know your own mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I think every time you have that moment of, do I want to give up? I had something in my gut which said, no, this is for you. And, you know, I had some pretty awful experiences um, as a trainee as well. I remember one of my supervisors. I'm asking about that because training to become a lawyer is very intense. Yeah. It's, I mean, I keep saying that everything's very intense, but the legal route really is. It's, it's such a struggle. And I can't imagine what being a trainee was like for you because I know it was harrowing for me. I didn't work for very nice people. And I don't think you worked. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if you did either. But generally, especially the, the in our professional careers, the type the the times that we were were training, there was a different perception on how you treated your trainees in any event. It was quite normal to be very very harsh, um, and that must have been even worse for you because of your dyslexia. Yeah, I mean, so we talk about going down the bar route and becoming a barrister. Basically, nobody was interested in having a dyslexic barrister, so that was the end of that. Um, I ended up working in a, a, a law firm um, outside of London. This was 2008, so height of the economic crisis coming through. Lots of firms which were having trainees through had either uh, rescinded on that or put their traineeships back um, maybe two years even. It was basically a market for the employer, not the employee. Um, so if you had a job and you were in the law profession at some stage, you were happy just to have a job. Yeah. Um, I was offered below minimum wage for a traineeship somewhere. Yeah. And I thought this is disgraceful really. But on top of that, I think because the power at the time was in the employer's position, you were open to being manipulated by it. And the thing about being a lawyer and supervising someone is you're not trained to be a supervisor or be a teacher with someone. So it's really potluck who you get. Yeah, who trains you, yeah. And some people have had a terrible experience when they were younger at being trained up, and they think to themselves, I don't want to give someone that kind of experience. I'm going to be different. Other people are very much like, well, I had it hard, so you're going to have it hard. And I yeah. think I had the latter. So I I think there was some kind of understanding of, of me being dyslexic and giving me a bit more time. But certainly I had times where uh, during my early career where people would write rot on my work and put a red pen through my work, make comments which were kind of hugely embarrassing. But I always knew that I had other skills which would come through. And, you know, I, I'm a, I see myself as a very good advocate. I'm a good talker. I'm good at kind of understanding and I think thinking laterally and um, and and getting what my clients want in a case um, or need, I suppose is the better word of saying. Um, and I knew once I got past that kind of pain that I would I I would hopefully excel, and I'm, I'm glad that I obviously did. Um, and I, I think if you talk to a lot of people, I I've over gone over their expectations of what they were expecting. For me. I've experienced failure 
from a very early age. And that has always given me an attitude of proving people wrong. And I think that's, yeah, and I think that's the hidden thing with being dyslexic is it's very rare that you, a lot of people, they experience really kind of having difficulty or not doing well when they enter into a, a job. Whereas I, I experienced it at six years old. Um, and it makes you good at troubleshooting, good at thinking in different ways of doing things to get to where you need to be. So it makes you hugely resilient. Um, and if you can, if, if you can get to that stage, it doesn't really matter what people throw at you, you'll find a way around it. Um, and you know, the experience I had of being supervised badly has always kind of informed how I want to kind of run things moving forward. And I think with our team, for instance, we have a really lovely environment. We're very protective over the culture and experience that we have. See ourselves, I think, as a bit of a tribe. Um, I would say, I would say so. And that's all based on that kind of bad experience. And I was like, well, we're not having that. We're going to try and change things. So, thank you. I think what our listeners really wanted was to hear the ex your experience um, of going through the entire system, because I think what a lot of our parents kind of sometimes struggle with is is he or she going to be all right you know is are they going to be okay you know it's good because you want to shield your child right don't you from everything you want to help them as much as possible you don't want them ridiculed at school or university where you can't control it or when they're training somewhere in the workplace like you can't control that environment um but i think we are lucky that um lots of places are now um a lot more open to neurodiversity i they're focusing on it a lot i know a lot of people are um a lot of companies are rolling out training across the board like my sister works for a really she's in hr and a really big organization they're always they're, they're starting to roll it out and giving regular neurodiversity training our company does it anyway because you know that we we do what we do so it's always kind of been part of us yeah, I'm, I mean, that's a really amazing thing to kind of think about is that kind of experience of the parent of where my child is going to go. And I've always been able to sit there and think, well, I've been that child in the classroom who hasn't done well, and I've been able to. So I've always had that kind of empathy for what my clients are going through. I hadn't quite understood what that experience is like until obviously I had my own child with special educational needs and their education was not working. And having that thought of, God, if we don't get this right now, what is the, the outcome here for my child's education and their life? Yeah. Um, and that's a really harrowing experience. So I think from a dyslexic's point of view, for me, it's sitting there and saying, actually, there is a, a route forward. It's a hard route in some respects, but it's going to give you resilience that I think will make you do really well and excel in life, um, particularly later on. Um, and then in terms of your other thing about, um, you know, firms being better with that, I think there are firms who are really good at it. I think there are firms who, who do lip service and say they do, and they don't actually deliver on that. So over the years, I've had other dyslexic trainees or, or lawyers um, coming to me for kind of advice about things. And we talked about really good services out there, like access to work. Yeah. Um, and also what is just available on your computer that you don't know about yeah word um, and stuff it's amazing like all of the all the helpful tools that are in there yeah honestly it's never been better time to be dyslexic in terms of the um technology out there to help you 
So there's good read back programs or read uh, on Word and also in your emails, which help you kind of identify your own. Voice 19, that's changed your life, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think, I think, um, I think my team, I don't know if they like it or loathe it. But I, I mean, talking as part of your team, I don't, I don't mind it. I think it's good. I like it because I've got used to sending you the voice notes back. Like, yes, that's been done. No, this still needs to be done. So uh, for everyone who's kind of listening, voice notes are on, on all, most phones now. So instead of sending a, a, a text message or a written note to someone, you're basically sending a voice note. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes quicker than talking to that person and it's quicker than writing down something. For me, to write out a text which actually makes sense to someone and they can see what I'm saying probably takes me three times as long as someone else. So sending a voice note where it's done in six seconds or less and being able to move on to the next task has sped me up unbelievably. And I think we were looking at it in terms of our clients, whether some of our clients who are dyslexic would prefer that as a, a route moving forward. Um, if they can't access their emails and stuff, that could be something we could do. So it has never been a better time, I think, to be dyslexic and the support is really there. I think, again, it comes down to the culture of, of firms that you're at and also schools. So there's lots of mainstream schools out there who say they're dyslexia-friendly, but what does that really mean? There's lots of independent schools which say they are the same, are they? Um, I mean, you would hope a dyslexic school is dyslexia-friendly, so I, won't, I wouldn't count those in there, but yeah. Indeed. <laughs> but yeah. Indeed. Um, well, thank you so much, Adam, for sharing your experience with us. Um, I'm sure our listeners um, are really uh, grateful uh, I hope that was helpful and thank you for listening.